have a new Bible, and it doesn't quite fit up here like my old one did. So, <laughs> good morning. I hope you're well, and welcome to Four Corners. I was reflecting recently that um, in, my, in my brief 30 years, I really, there has been no more consistent activity in my life than worshiping on Sunday mornings with God's people. I, I have one of those testimonies where I, I don't remember a time where I wasn't ever in church. So I, I can confidently say now for 30 and a half years, I have, have been worshiping with God's people every week. And I, I don't have anything else in my life that has been that consistent for that long. So I praise God for that. And more than likely, I don't even realize the blessing that that is. But I'm grateful for it and grateful to be able to worship with uh, the church that meets at Four Corners every week. It was um, March of one year ago that Lonnie preached our second sermon in our series on Romans. Uh, We've been swimming, if you're visiting by the way, we've been uh, swimming in the deep end of Romans recently. That's what I tell our students on Sunday mornings. And if you're curious, the students are swimming in the deep end along with us adults, so uh, there, there's no slack there. Um, but uh, we, you may have expected us to be in Romans 7 again this morning where we picked up. Lord willing, uh, we'll be back there next week. But, so if, you're, if you are visiting, we have been moving along quite uh, nicely in Romans 7. But it was a year ago, this week of March, that Lonnie preached our second sermon in this series. That was called uh, The Man Behind the Letter, Part 2. Little did we know that would be the last time in 15 weeks that we would gather again for corporate worship in person. I went back and listened to the first few minutes of that sermon yesterday. It was blissfully ignorant, let me tell you that much, because we had no idea what was coming down the hatch. And in fact, this is funny, in fact, Lonnie started his introductory comments, this, this kind of part of the sermon, saying we should not take corporate worship for granted. Now, we don't prophesy from the stage very often here at Four Corners, but that might have been as close to it as we get. That the week, the last week that we had meeting together for 15 weeks, Lonnie said, let's not take corporate worship for granted. Amen. And we, of course, know what was behind the hiatus of our meeting, we know what the history books will say the year of 2020 was, what it was defined by, that none of us need reminder of what that has been. But it has been a strange year since we began Romans. One of the strange things is that we suddenly all have opinions on things that we did not have opinions on a year ago. I remember the first time I heard the word social distancing. I had never heard those two words go together. I didn't even know what it meant. And then I started seeing it a couple of times. I thought, well, maybe this is a new thing. Maybe this is the term. And now it's, it's part of our vernacular. It's like water, social distancing. And I look forward to the day when it is not part of our vernacular. But it's not just the pandemic we had, our in, I suppose, still, that uh, made last year strange. We had Uh, national strife, we had contentious election, we had riots at the Capitol, our friends in Honduras 
uh, were in uh, uh, stifling governmental lockdowns. They had back-to-back Category 5 hurricanes wipe out parts of the country. This is not even America-centric. This has been all over. And this is not the time or the place to offer uh, cultural analysis, nor am I the person that you need offer giving you cultural analysis. But I do think it's safe to say that the last year has been disorienting, to say the least, for some more than others, and disorienting maybe not even for the main reasons. I look across the congregation, and I, I know most of you, and I know there are things going on in different people's lives that are just disorienting, that may or may not have anything to do with pandemic, but it's at least a common theme in many people's lives that this has been a disorienting year. But what I, what I fear is that some of that disorientation has caused us to turn inward, to cause us to turn our focus inward. For example, we have to suddenly think about things that we had never thought of before. What do I think about this pandemic? What did I think about masks and vaccines? What do I think about civil disobedience, for example? Some of that's been necessary for us to think through because we we had to think through that just to be able to live in the world that 2020 gave us. So that was necessary. But then you come to a different conclusion than your neighbor comes to on any given issue or, or a different conclusion than your fellow church member comes to and suddenly there's new there's new strife. There's new opportunity for the flesh. What do we, what do, we do with, with all of this? And, and the net effect of it all, in many cases, has been a turn inward. Whatever focus we did have upwards towards the Lord or outwards on the nations, likely in the last year, in some ways, has done this. If you would turn with me to the end of the Psalms, 148. 149 and 150. This is an orienting text. If you have been disoriented for one reason or another, pandemic or whatever, Psalm 148, 149, and 150 is an orienting text. The title of the text is Praise the Lord. That may sound like cheating. But when you have a phrase that's repeated, depending on how you count, at least 28 times in three chapters, it's kind of hard to justify naming the sermon anything else. The main idea of the text, as you might expect, is a command to praise the Lord. I'm excited about preaching this. Uh, In some form or fashion, uh, these chapters have been rattling around in my head for the better part of a decade. It was uh, as I was finishing college that um, this was the first large block of text that I ever undertook to memorize. And I still remember Laura, when we were dating, uh, quizzing me and reading along with it as I was learning these, these verses. But for the better part of a decade, these psalms have been rattling around in my head and have been influencing my life, and I'm grateful to share them with you. I don't want to overstate, but in a very real sense today, we're dealing with the meaning of life. That's what these texts are getting at. And to prepare us for reading, 
I actually want to start with a quote from Jonathan Edwards. When I knew that I was going to be preaching these uh, texts, I, uh, I began to uh, read through his essay, The End for Which God Created the World. You may not be familiar with that, but you probably are familiar with what was born out of that. Um, uh, the idea of Christian hedonism, which most of us will associate with John Piper, has its genesis in Edwards' essay, The End for Which God Created the World. And in fact, Piper will say quite freely that the, the mantra of, of desiring God, of his ministry of Christian hedonism, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, is essentially a reworking of Edwards' argument from the end for which God created the world. So here's what Edwards has to say to prepare us for these psalms. And this, this language is old, and I realize without the benefit of the context, it, it might be, some of these might be difficult, but here's what he has to say. Thus, we must conclude that such an arbiter, as I have supposed, would determine that the whole universe, in all its actings, proceedings, revolutions, and entire series of events, should proceed with a view to God as the supreme and last end, that every wheel in all its rotations should move with a constant, invariable regard to him, that is God, as the ultimate end of all. So Edwards is arguing, arguing likewise that we ought to orient ourselves to God. In fact, his argument is, is really much bigger than that. His argument is the entire universe is oriented to God. So I start there, not because the text needs any introduction from Jonathan Edwards, as helpful as he is. The text needs no intro, but his assertion there that, that all things move, he says, with invariable regard to him as the ultimate and last end, that assertion undergirds this text, Psalm 148, 149, and 150, that God is the ultimate end of all things. Therefore, praise the Lord. If you would please stand. I know this is three chapters, but they're not all that long, so I think we will be okay. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him all you shining stars. Praise him you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. 
Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. I told you. Patrick warned you too. It's there a lot. Praise the Lord. Pray with me now as we dive in. God, thank you for this time and I thank you for this text. I pray that it would do its work. I pray that we would trust the text to work, to not return void. God, would it rightly orient us toward you, every square inch of our hearts oriented toward the praise of God. Would you give us focus and attention over these next few minutes? Would you do the same for our children that are with Those that are teaching this morning, thank you for that work, and we pray that it also would bear fruit and not return void in their life. Amen. So let me just give you a a quick review of the landscape here. I realize this may be psalms that you are not totally familiar with. These three, 148, 149, and 150, are part of a larger block from 146 to 150. Uh, They're called the Hallelujah Psalms or the Hallel. Uh, The word praise the Lord really is just Hallelujah that that bookends each of these. So from 146 to 150, each chapter begins and ends with a Hallelujah, begins and ends with a praise the Lord. And there's actually two other Hallelujah collections in the Psalms, and this is the one that caps them all off. 148 and 149 are composed of imperatives and rationales, or you could say commands and reasons. And that's important because we'll bounce back and forth today between the commands and the rationales. That's what we have in 148 and 149. And then 150 concludes, it's a bit unique, concludes with a swelling crescendo of praise. So our three uh, guide guide points today will be Praise the Lord of creation, which will correspond mostly with 148. Praise the Lord of his people, which will correspond mostly with 149. And then 150, a crescendo of praise. 148 begins with a call to the whole of creation to praise the Lord. 
And as it does, it proceeds roughly in the order of creation from Genesis 1. We get a call first to the heavens to praise the Lord, then a call to the earth to praise the Lord, and then finally a call to mankind to praise the Lord. We'll, we'll look at those each briefly. Starts with a call to the heavens to participate in the worship of the Lord. Look at verse 1. The heavens. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. The psalmist is establishing the upper limit of praise from the get-go. Where are the heavens? Where are the heights? They're just up. I don't know. They're just up, right? Day two of creation. God creates an expanse, and He calls it heavens. He calls it sky. So the call here is, you space that's up, praise Him. It's a boundless upper limit. It really is no limit because it's infinite. Praise Him from the up there space. Verse 2, praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. An echo of Psalm 29, verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. These incredible creatures at the sight of which men always tremble in fear. They make up the heavenly armies of God, his hosts, his messengers, his praisers, his worshipers. Think of the throne room scene in Isaiah 6. You have the Lord there seated on his throne and then standing above the Lord are the seraphim. And Isaiah says they called out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The heavenly beings existing to praise the Lord. Existing to give him the glory he is due. And then we have a call to the heavenly bodies, verses 3 and 4. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim His handiwork, Psalm 19. One night this past week, I had been studying this text in primarily 148 that day. And I I think I was taking the trash out, but I, I couldn't help but notice it was clear and I saw the sky, and I had this in mind. Praise the Lord. Praise Him, sun and moon, all you shining stars. It felt almost audacious to know there is a call to these heavenly bodies, which are the highest things that we can possibly imagine, and tell them that there is something higher than them that they actually serve. What's higher than the stars? Answer, the Lord. Of course, they exist for something higher than themselves, and they exist because of something higher than themselves. Isaiah 40, 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, get this, not one is missing. Verses 1 through 4 establish for us that the Lord is the Lord of the heavens. Therefore, the heavens owe him their praise. As we see God shown to be higher than what we know as the highest thing, higher really than incomprehensible things, our scope of God begins to widen, and by necessity, we begin to shrink. 
I have to think this is what David had in mind when he wrote in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? As the heavens declare the glory of God, they do begin to put us in our place, orienting us into our place. The next call goes out to the earth, 7 through 10. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire, hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Genesis 1 shows a pattern of God forming and filling the earth. Primarily, he forms the earth on days 1 through 3, and then 4 through 6, he fills what he had formed. And here, in these verses, we see a call both to, the, to what is formed and to what is filled to praise the Lord. The forming, mountains and the hills and the seas and the weather patterns are all subjects in this kingdom of the universe which is ruled by God. Look at verse 8. I've always loved this language. I, 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 uh, I learned this first in the NIV. And the end of verse 8 says, Praise him, you stormy winds that do his bidding. Here in the ESV it says, it says stormy wind fulfilling his word. Not even the invisible wind escapes the sovereignty and the reign of God. Not even the wind is exempt from giving the Lord the praise he is due, from living according to its purpose. The wind obeys according to what God says. But also the filling is in view. Great sea creatures, fruit trees, cedars, Animals that walk and crawl and swim and fly. This list is just a, it's, it's a long list. It's almost overwhelming to see the, the creativity with which God has made all of these things. It's astounding. My son and I like to watch these, these Planet Earth documentaries. I don't know if you ever see those. It's amazing the shots they get and what they have to go through. We watched one recently where uh, they were trying to film a tiger and these guys had to spend seven months in the dead of winter, eastern Russia, in a plywood hut. And they came out with 15 seconds of a tiger. After seven months, by themselves, mind you. Makes you realize the stealth of the tiger praises the Lord. You watch those, kind of, those kinds of shows, the, the precision of the eagle we watched one recently. A hundred, uh, 240 miles an hour can a peregrine falcon dive and catch a bird in midair. That praises the Lord. The strength of the redwood tree, another one we watched recently, praises the Lord. All of these things created, given inherently to praise God. Praise Him from the heavens, praise Him from the earth. You things of the earth, now in verses 11 and 12, praise him, you people of the earth. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens, old men and children, all manner of mankind is in view. Nobility, 
rulers, young, old, men, women, all peoples. The praise of mankind is what's in view. The praise of mankind is due this one supreme God. Notice the mention of kings here in verse 11. It's interesting that there's a mention, of, there's a mention to kings in Psalm 2, 11, uh, 10 through 11. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So bookending the Psalms in 2 and in 148, we have a command to the ruling authorities of the earth that they likewise do not escape the rain. They likewise are subjects themselves. Like the stars and like the wind, no man is elevated high enough to be exempt from this purpose of praising the Lord. And it's significant that we get this block last, that we get men coming after the heavens, after the earth. If the good of creation, what God calls good, is meant to praise him, how much more the very good of creation. Man was the crown, the crowning achievement of what God made is man. Day six, after forming and filling the earth with all kinds of creative creatures, we get this. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That language should sound familiar from Psalm 148. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him, created them. And God blessed them. No other part of creation is given such dignity. No other part of creation is, is endowed with such distinction as is mankind. So the call here is mankind, you were made in the image of God, so give your creator the praise he is due. The implication of this so far from heavens and earth and man, by reflecting the order of creation, the psalmist is showing us that God has complete jurisdiction. Over every square inch, he has complete jurisdiction. It seems as if Jonathan Edwards' language that we used is accurate. He said, the whole universe. And as if that wasn't comprehensive enough, he adds the tag, its actings, proceedings, revolutions, and entire series of events. The word picture in here is, is screaming this to us from the, from the highest of heavens to the depths of the ocean, from the top of the mountains to the animals that crawl around on the dirt, from the loftiest dignitary to the lowliest child, the Lord reigns over it all and demands its praise. Like I said a minute ago, hearing these words should put us in our place. We could think of a lot of ourselves as humans. We just went to Mars again. I don't know if you know that. Not man, but we just sent another craft 
to Mars? If you've been following it, it's been fascinating. High definition pictures and audio and video of the surface of Mars. It takes a while for us to even get the pictures back because apparently, I never thought of this before, it takes a minute to send data 140 million miles. But we figured it out. We're pretty good. But the fact of the matter is, we could go another 140 million miles, multiply that by 140 million miles, and we would never cross a threshold that God does not look and point and exclaim, Mine! Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. I think we can confidently say the universe is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. The reflection of creation in 148 shows us God's comprehensive jurisdiction and his right to demand praise from every square inch of it. I mentioned earlier that there are both commands and rationales. We've only been in the command so far in 148. The rationale, the first one, comes in verses 5 and 6. This comes after the call to the heavens to praise the Lord. Let them praise the name of the Lord for, that's the key that you know that we're in a rationale, for he commanded and they were created and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. So the Lord commanded the heavens into existence. He decreed that they would remain in operation, he established them on their foundations. This language is dripping with Genesis 1. Commanding with the word, let there be, dot, dot, dot. Setting the heavenly bodies on their foundations, decreeing that they would rule over the day and the night. Praise the Lord, you heavens, because you exist because of him, is the idea here in the text. Notice something with me, though. In response, they obey. At his command, they became. At his decree, they continue. At his establishment, they reign. They continue in their place. And we are witness to this every day. Every day, we are witness to the obedience of the sun and the moon and all you shining stars. Praising the Lord. So don't miss that this is, after all, a text of command. One commentary makes this point. In these starry depths, obedience reigns. Get this. It is only on earth that a being lives who can and will break the merciful barriers of Jehovah's law. The stars and the heavens know the reason for which they were created and they obey. Now, one may object to that and say, but they're inanimate. 
Obedience is a non-category for inanimate objects. Perhaps that's true. But then how much more we who are animate, who as we just read, have had the breath of God breathed into them, made in his image, how much more ought we to obey than the Son? Speaking of men, this brings us to our next rationale in verse 13. So this is the end of Psalm 148. We get another four marker that we're in a rationale. This one comes after the call to mankind. So after the call to the kings and the the princes and the young and the old and all peoples, we get this language. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted, and his majesty is above the earth and the heavens. I mentioned earlier that mankind is in view. This is a command to all men. There is but one exalted being who sits over all. There is but one whose majesty is above earth and heaven. Therefore, O man, praising in or glorying in anything short of that one means by nature Praising created things. It's a reminder that things, be they the tiger or the sun, were not made to be worshipped. They were in fact made to worship. This throws in our face the wickedness that we have dealt with creation. Does this sound familiar to you? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Psalm 148 says, Wicked! It screams, No! He alone is to be praised. Do not be so silly as to worship a created thing. But this is at the core of sin. It is at the core of unbelief. At the core is a refusal to do Psalm 148, 13. At the core of sin is a refusal to exalt the one who alone is exalted. That is why using our lives to exalt anything less than God is treason against him. A call to the human race, like the stars, like the animals, O man, know your purpose. Praise the Lord. At this point, though, after verse 13, the tone begins to change. So far, we have been looking at the God of the cosmos. We saw how in looking at this, the scope of God widens. But now, in verse 14, we see how the God of the cosmos is suddenly the God who is close. If you're taking notes, let me just say this. Verse 14 acts as kind of a transition. It's kind of sitting both in point one and in point two. There's not really a clear uh, distinction there. I'm a note taker. That's why I'm, I'm telling all of my fellow note takers this because this would bother me if I didn't have this 
direction. So verse 14 is kind of sitting in both, both places. Just keep in mind, as we move through 14, we will end up in point two, because verse 14 is preparing us for Psalm 149. If you want to think graphically so far about the rationales that we've been dealing with, the first rationale was showing us how big God is. It was opening our scope to show us his comprehensive nature, therefore praise him. Well, with this second rationale, as we see God coming close, we see the rationale is going to go deeper and closer. So instead of God being big, therefore praise, it's we're going to go deep into God, therefore praise. Verse 14, he has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. We're no longer speaking in generalities like we were before, men, women, kings, all peoples. We're now speaking about God's people, God's saints. Literally, it's those on whom the steadfast love of the Lord has been set. Or the steadfastly loved of God, those are the saints. That's what's in view here. And it says that the Lord has paid them special, particular attention. He has raised up a horn for them. This word horn is a little difficult. Sometimes in Psalms it refers to, it's a messianic word. But typically that's when you have horn of salvation. Other times you'll see horn, literal horns of an animal or horns of an altar, but when it's not dealing with any of those three things, horn oftentimes simply means the, the strength or the dignity or the honor of a person. I think that's what's in view here. It was saying is by setting his love on a particular people, God has endowed them with special dignity. And this goes along with the next phrase there, praise for all his saints. It's not saying that the saints would be praised. The text has already eliminated that as a possibility. We're not praising the saints. It's saying God has bestowed on his people with such dignity and honor so that they would in turn praise him. In other words, his people are his people so that he would be praised. You, if you are a Christian, you are a Christian so that he would be praised. This is, this is Ephesians 1 kind of language. Three, three different places in Ephesians 1, we get this. The Father predestined us for adoption to the praise of his glorious grace. Then we get, we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then we get sealed with the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. We were saved. We are his people. God has a people at all so that they might praise him. You see how this text is demanding all things in our life be oriented toward the glory of God. It's not specific, but it doesn't need to be because it's comprehensive. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time applying here. In fact, I'm going to ask that in our gospel communities this week, we do the hard work of applying. Where does the glory of God in all things come to bear on my life? So if you could just handle that in an hour, gospel community group discussion, that'd be great. But as we think through those things, we might find in some parts of our life that we are in fact not oriented toward the glory of the Lord, but we are in fact oriented towards something lesser, something created, something not worthy. And in many cases, we may find that we are 
oriented right back at ourselves. So as we move into 149, we're going to continue with the rationale. So by the way, we're fully in point two by now for you note takers. So in 148, we dealt with command first and rationale second. We'll do that backwards. In 149, we'll, we'll stick with the rationale and then we'll do command second. If verse 14 has taken the rationale deeper and closer, like I said, it's only been a foretaste because it pushes us into the rationale given in 149, which I think is the most striking feature of these chapters. 149 verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. To read that after reading Psalm 148 ought to lay us on the floor. The one whose playground, his, his playground is the cosmos. Innumerable angels worship him without ceasing, but apparently he takes pleasure in you. Not in the sun with its million degrees, not in the, the intricacies of the human body or the genius of the water cycle that keeps our earth well watered. No, no, no. Not in those things. The Lord of the universe takes pleasure in you. He delights in his, of all his creation, he delights in his people. Now, here's where this becomes particularly relevant. And here's where it connects. If you're looking for a connection to Romans, here's where it connects to Romans. A God that delights in his people, that takes pleasure in his people, is not a God that withholds his pleasure contingent upon the performance of his people. I think those of us who are parents can understand this somewhat. It is a wicked parent that withholds delight in his child until they perform for him. This is not a God that requires us to measure up. You don't measure up. That's the point of the gospel. Christ measured up for you because you cannot. He delights in his people because Jesus measured up. So we say with the hymn writer, I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. God delights in you on the basis of his son. There is no law by which you measure up, so stop trying. You do not need to earn his approval. In fact, you cannot. To put it simply, you're too bad and he's too good. He delights in you because of his grace and steadfast love. And if we don't realize that there is no law by which we measure up, we will never be able to, as Paul said last week, serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. This understanding is one of the keys to dying to the law, to knowing that whatever our law looks like in, our, in my life that I may have construed in my own head needs to be put to death because God delights in me on the basis of his Son. 
Now, I want to make an application quickly to our students, and I get to hang out with you guys frequently, uh, weekly. Um, This is not just to students. Us adults will feel this as well, but particularly to students. I want you just to hear something. You will be very tempted to think that God needs you to measure up. With the competitive nature of school, sports, an entire youth culture predicated upon fitting in, you will want to apply that to the Lord and think that likewise you must measure up for Him also. If you are in Christ, young person, you are free. There is no amount of measuring up that you could do. Of course, yes, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Yes, of course, we work hard, but by the grace of God, he delights in you on the basis of his son whom you have trusted. And you are free from having to earn his favor. I know that applies to me still, so I say that to students, but I know all of us need, I don't think we ever stop needing to hear that. Derek Kidner is, uh, was a, uh, last century, was a, a, a well-known Old Testament scholar and commentator, particularly with the Psalms. He has this to say about a God that delights in his people. That is the climax of the Psalm, as it is the gospel. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. That's Revelation 21, verse 3. So let me just continue. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You can see why Psalm 149 may be an eschatological psalm pointing us to the end. This is your future. Christian, a place where every tear is wiped away, no mourning, no crying, no pain, former things gone. Our future is delighting in the Lord and the Lord delighting in us forever. That's our initial rationale from Psalm 149. But as if to add another layer, we have the second half of verse 4. He adorns the humble with salvation. Not only is the God of the cosmos close to his people, but they are a lowly people. They are an afflicted, humble people. Just I, I, If you didn't know, I need to tell you. God has not sought out the cream of the crop. And if he sought you out, what does that say about you? This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, gee, thanks, Paul. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring about, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being would boast in the presence of God. And here's Paul's best impersonation of Psalm 149. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are the foolish, the weak, the low, and the despised. 
Of course we don't orient our lives towards ourselves. We are a humble bunch. Don't start looking around. It makes us ask with Paul, what then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Of course, we're a humble people. What is there to boast in about us? The humble have been adorned with salvation so that they would boast in the Lord. This word for humble is quite versatile. You'll see it translated in different ways in the Old Testament and the New. Gentle, afflicted, meek, lowly. I'm sure that, in fact I know, that there are some here that would put themselves in that camp. The category of not humble as in, as in not prideful, but humble as in lowly. First thing you should know is that you're in the right place. I don't mean right place as in I'm glad you're in this building. I mean you're in the right state. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But if you place yourself in that camp, you should be encouraged God is close to the afflicted. I heard one commentator say, he beautifies the afflicted. Same idea as adorns the humble, he beautifies the afflicted. So take heart. The God of the cosmos adorns the humble with the lowly with salvation. But as if we needed another layer there is yet one more to this rationale. So just follow the logic so far. We saw the cosmic God of the universe who demands praise. He is close, therefore we should praise him. He's close to his people, yet a humble people. But he adorns the lowly with salvation. Incredible. Because he himself in the person of his son has become lowly. The lowliest. The word, yes, the one of Psalm 148 verse 5 that commanded and they were created. All things were made through him, we see in Colossians 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was in the form of God, yet did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that he might humble, adorn the humble with salvation. He bore the penalty of sin by absorbing the wrath of God that we were due so that the humble might be adorned with salvation. You know what Jesus says about himself on earth? I am gentle and lowly in heart. What do you think those words might be the same word as in Psalm 149 verse 4? He adorns the Humble with salvation. Our God is this. He became this in the person of Christ. So the rationale for praise that we get here 
It's not just that God is big, therefore praise. It's not just God is close, therefore praise. It opens up the heart of God and you see that it beats for us. We see a love beyond comprehension. That he and the person of his son became lower than you so that he might have you. The ground we have covered from the initial rationale, verses 5 and 6 of 148, to here is infinite. The infinite God is infinitely over things that are infinite. What? But he also became lowly and humbled himself so that he might adorn you with salvation. The gap there is infinite. And for all these reasons, title of the sermon, praise the Lord. Now, Lest we conclude that it's all about us, I'm so grateful God came to save me. We have not yet dealt with the, com- the, the command of 149. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. So, of course, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel be glad in his maker and the children of Zion be glad in their king, praising his name with melody and tambourine and dancing and and lyre. Of course, we praise him after that rationale. If the initial reasons widen the scope for the comprehensive rule of God, the deepest reason is seeing into the heart of God and the extent to which he went to make you his own to the praise of his glory. Praise the one who is the Lord of his people. Now, before we move to 150, we need to briefly deal with the end of 149, which is unexpected, I will admit. We get an unexpected twist in Psalm 149 of God's judgment on the wicked. And it seems as if this judgment is carried out by his people. Now, it will help to make more sense of this if we, if we think of humble as afflicted, and though that, that sense of the, of the word. And we should also be clear that there's no hint of personal vengeance or private resentment at the end of 149. Let me just just read it again. This will be 5 through 9. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations, punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute in them, on them the judgment written, this is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Probably not how I would have put it, but there's a reason I didn't write the Psalms. Whatever we have here, whatever is the judgment written in verse 9, we should see that it's God's doing. However that plays out, it's God's doing. So it's likely then that this, this, this uh, portion of 149 is here to instill hope to an afflicted people. That the evil committed against them and committed against the Lord will not go unavenged. But when you consider that, that how, much, how much real estate that theme has in the book of Psalms as a whole, 
It does make sense. It does make sense that in these concluding chapters, we get a representation of one of the dominant themes of the Psalms, which is crying out for help to the Lord in the face of affliction. So it is not, in that sense, totally unexpected that we would have such words here. But that brings us to chapter 150. We come to the close of the Psalms, and it, it is unique from the previous two chapters. We don't necessarily get the same kind of structure of command and rationale. Like 149 and, uh, 148 and 149, it does begin and end with the hallelujah. It begins and ends with the praise the Lord. But unlike those, it actually repeats praise Him on every line. This chapter is packed with commands, 13 imperatives in six verses. The praise here in 150, after 149 chapters of praise to the Lord, the praise has reached a crescendo. It's as if the water is boiling and the kettle is at a screaming whistle of praise by the time you get to the end. There's no rationales given. There's no subject in view. At this point, all that could be said has been said. As Calvin said, every, the whole range of human emotion has been accounted for in the Psalms. The only thing left, the only fitting conclusion is unencumbered praise. One commentator said, Psalm 150 is melodious thunder with instruments and dancing and even a, a get this, a literal crescendo. I love this. This is verse 5. This has to be like literary genius. So the psalm is ending with a literary crescendo by repeating the word praise over and over. Then you get to verse 5 and you read, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. It ends also with a literal crescendo of cymbals. And just to make sure there is no stone left unturned, just in case maybe somehow you missed it in the previous 149 chapters, the Psalms, that great book that we all love and we all go to, that mountains of commentary have been written on, ends with let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. How else could it end? One conclusive message about the meaning of life. I wasn't lying. This is about the meaning of life, about the meaning of your life. This is the end of all things, that God will go on receiving the praise he has always been due. We can now finally concur with John in every wheel, in all its rotations, does move with constant and variable regard to God as the ultimate end of all. He is over all things. He created all things. He has a love greater than all things in the person of his son. Therefore, orient every square inch of your life towards his praise. That's the call of these psalms. And the implications are limitless. You name it, it applies. Business, money, parenting, being married, missions, evangelism. You name it, Psalm 148, 149, and 150 applies to your life. That's why 
I'm going to ask us this week in our gospel communities to think through how that principle comes to bear. Does my life, does actually every wheel in my life move with constant and variable regard towards God and his glory? Or am I disoriented? Those are the only two options. Either every wheel moves toward God in your life or you are disoriented. So I hope and pray that you would spend some time this week meditating on the text. And I hope that this text would become part of your life, a constant source of orientation towards the glory of God. Let's pray. God, there is much to be thankful for. We've seen here even the small amount that we can comprehend, which is not a sizable fraction of who you actually are. But we have seen what us humble folk can comprehend, and it is breathtaking. God, would you take this text, and as we prayed earlier, would you water our lives with it so that we might be pushed to see where there are areas in our life where we do not properly move with invariable regard toward your glory. We know, God, that you will be praised one way or another, that our sin and our disorientation does not diminish you and it does not diminish who you are God but we desire as a people as a church for all of us every part of all of us to be oriented toward your praise so that we might likewise our lives might likewise resound with such a crescendo of praise I thank you, God, for the covenant meal we are about to partake in. The work that your son has done, which is the climax of the Bible, the climax of created history. And I pray that it would serve to strengthen us yet another week as we go out into the world and live our lives for you. Amen.